0: All right. Thank you, Steve. I think Steve was the actually the individual champion in the uh, Bible drill, and Kim, Kim Robinson also, I believe, was an individual champion in Bible drills, so it's pretty intimidating to have two national champions in your congregation if you're, if you're talking about the Bible. Anyway, so Steve is pretty much expressing the approach to Scripture that many of us either grew up with or maybe learned on the campus ministry, previous church, or actually it's the, the view that you absorb just through contemporary popular culture. And it's one, I think, that can, for, for some obvious reasons, uh, turn into a kind of stumbling block to our fruitful engagement with Scripture. And it's summed up in the phrase, the Bible says. I mean, how many times have we heard the Bible says as a kind of final word trump card in a debate? So I want to, I want to, um, Organize my remarks today and then we'll have some time for QA and comments afterwards under three major headings. The first is the trouble with saying the Bible says. Second, thoughts on the morally objectionable things in Scripture. And third, just a couple of suggestions for Bible recovery if if you've been negatively influenced by this, by the, the um disadvantages of this of this approach. So let's begin with a the trouble with the Bible says two things. First, the Bible doesn't actually say anything. You know, it's a written text, right? And so it's not speaking. The Bible doesn't say anything. The Bible's a written document. No text speaks for itself. All texts require a reader to be deciphered. And the act of reading a text, any text, uh, you know, out loud or even just as a voice inside our heads is an act of interpretation. You know, example, uh, the phrase don't be afraid in the voice of a mother reassuring her child is one thing. The voice don't be afraid from a platoon leader urging a private into battle is another. So tone of voice, facial expression, body posture accounts for what, like 80% of communication, all of which are only inferred at best in any form of written communication. Um, So often as readers, we're just making our best guess about, you know, the most important uh, portion of communication. We're interpreting by the act of reading. And, and here's, I think, the, the, it's the hardest thing for me to get my mind around when I'm comparing modern approaches to reading with uh, the, the, the uh, approach of communication in the biblical period. In the ancient world, where manuscripts were rare and literacy rates were low, the primary mode of communication was um, performative, meaning a person speaking before a group, acting out a message, not even reading a portion of the Bible out loud, but more like retelling a story from the Bible. Like, I I guess on our church service, it would be like Diane Sonda does in a kid's minute, you know, with puppets and changing voices and dramatic pauses, retelling a story that is written down in scripture, the primary mode of communication in the ancient world was this performative acting out uh, approach. So in, in a world like that, what are written documents, written documents come into existence more as like notes or a script for those, those acted out performances only with the stage directions missing that you'd find in a modern script so that that means that interpretation filling in the gap shaping the meaning of the words with tone of voice physical gestures acting out the words is even more important compared to say a modern novel where a writer is you know crafting conveying all this with very complex language including internal dialogue and so on so Someone acting out a story has to do a lot of interpretation. You know, you inflect with humor, with sarcasm, irony, exaggeration, pathos, dramatic pauses, all of which have a huge impact on the meaning of the communication. Of course, the other obvious problem is that most of us don't know the original languages of the Bible. Ancient Hebrew, in the case of the what we call the Old Testament, and ancient, or Koine. Greek, which just means like uh, common Greek or street Greek, and not, not the higher literary Greek. That's the, the Koine Greek is the language of the New Testament. So we're depending on translations from ancient languages into modern English. And the act of translation involves a great deal of interpretation. Every choice made in translation affects meaning. Um, you know. Great example is Nikita Khrushchev in what 1960 at the United Nations. Takes his shoe off, pounds it on the table, and he says something in Russia. It's translated as, We will bury you. It turns out the Russian translator was raised in London. A more accurate translation of what Khrushchev said was, We will outlast you. So big difference. Sarah Rudin, my latest favorite accomplished translator of ancient texts, including the New Testament, says in her book on translation, The Face of Water, the translations of the Bible can easily convey different meanings, because the ancient languages, Koine Greek for the New Testament, Biblical Hebrew for the Old Testament, are so different from English in so many ways. Uh, Just one simple difference that has a huge impact is that English has a much larger lexicon or vocabulary than either ancient Greek or biblical Hebrew. English is therefore capable of being much more precise than these ancient languages are. So when a language has fewer words, each word carries more possible meanings, right? Each word, in a sense, is more vague, is less specific. So what do we mean these ancient languages have fewer words than than English? Biblical Hebrew uses an estimated 8,700 unique words. English has 170,000 unique words. It's a huge difference. It's the difference between a preschooler and a clinical, clinical psychologist talking about feelings. So the preschooler uses, what, glad, sad, or mad. The psychologist knows mad encompasses irritated, annoyed, hangry, resentful, jealous, you know, enraged, livid, and many shadings in between. That gap is filled in by interpretation. So when word choices are as limited as they are in ancient Hebrew and Greek, each word covers a wider range of meanings. So translating the word word into English takes a lot of guesswork and a lot of interpretation. Significant interpretation decisions start with the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the Spirit was over the waters. God seems straightforward, except the Hebrew there is Elohim, which is a plural noun, more literally, the gods. Ruach is the Hebrew that translates spirit, but Ruach in Hebrew means equally wind, breeze, breath, spirit. And so, whoever's translating the word is, is is interpreting by choosing one of those translations. In Genesis 2, the woman is described as a, as a helpmate in the older English translation. Robert Alter says helpmate is quite misleading, that the Hebrew term actually means something like sustainer beside him, much closer to the original Hebrew. So Every translation involves a lot of interpretation, producing then a written text that needs further interpretation by a reader. All readers come to a text with prior assumptions, concerns, and loyalties, and those prior assumptions, concerns, and loyalties affect the um, choices made uh, and the interpretations made. So. Scripture doesn't say anything without a reader. All reading is an act of interpretation. All interpretation is shaped by prior assumptions, concerns, loyalties, and that's just the first problem with saying the Bible says. (laughs) So the second problem with the Bible says is the Bible doesn't speak with a single voice. Um, The Bible includes a variety of perspectives from different writers, and these when, when you read the bible you see that these writers disagree even contradict each other they, they don't always speak with a single voice which is implied in the bible says so another way to say this is scripture is multivocal, not univocal it's not a single book by a single author but a collection of writings from many authors these different authors have different points of view they don't agree with with each other including on important matters so examples genesis chapter one describes creation happening in six days uh, in which vegetation appears before the creatures and humans are the last of the creatures but in genesis 2 different creation account creation occurs in a single day In the day the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, is the phrase, when no plant of the earth was yet on the earth and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, then the Lord God formed the human from the dust. And then after the creation of the human, you have the creation of the other creatures. So it's a completely different ordering. And, you know, whoever put these two chapters together, uh, called technically the redactor or the editor, they knew that these were two different stories from two different points of view, and they, they readily put them together because they weren't concerned about what we think of as historical accuracy. They, were, they had other concerns. The stories were making different points. They fit fine together from that point of view. Or another example, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three of the three of the four gospels have Jesus' prophetic disruption of the temple occurring at the end of Jesus' ministry, while in John, it occurs early on. It's one of the first public things that Jesus does. So not the Bible says, but Mark says one thing, John says another. This is a more accurate way of talking about scripture. Another example is uh, the books of of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Old Testament inveigh against Israelites having foreign wives, actually command the Israelites who have foreign wives to put the wives away, divorce them. The book of Leviticus says, love the foreigner who lives in the land as equals. Love them as yourself. Uh, The book of Ruth features Boaz marrying a Moabite which is like the most hated enemy group for Israelites at the time. And, and that union gives birth to Obed, who's the father of David. Um, Moses, in, in um, the book, book of Exodus, marries Zipporah, a foreign wife. So you've got multiple perspectives, multiple views on that one issue. What if the goal, instead of a single correct interpretation is multiple plausible or good interpretations. You know, in that perspective, meaning is still important. All, all interpretations are not equal, but anxiety is reduced. You know, in, in uh, Acts 15, the early church was facing an interpretation issue regarding what to expect of the non-Jews coming to faith in Jesus. And so they debate this matter in the Jerusalem Counselor, and then I think it's James, uh, sums up the consensus of the group by saying, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit. Not it seemed right, but it seemed good to us. One way to be right, many ways to be good. It just leaves a lot more room. There's a lot less anxiety and fear about getting things wrong with that uh, multivocal view of scripture. So to sum up so far, simply accepting these two things, all scripture must be interpreted. And what we call scripture includes many different perspectives, which don't always agree, which sometimes actually contradict each other. Just accepting that like, brings enormous relief. In this view, if this is what scripture is, then we're invited into a conversation with the different perspectives within Scripture. It's like, peop, you know, there's, there's a living room, and people are uh, speaking uh, from different points of view, some of which agree, some of which disagree. We come into the living room, and we kind of get a beat on our own thinking and make our own contributions, agree with some voices, disagree with others. That's what it's like to engage Scripture if this is what Scripture is, which writings do we elevate? Which do we consider secondary? That's our task as readers of Scripture, making those discernments. So, to, onto our second main section thoughts on the morally objectionable things in Scripture, including uh, morally objectionable things that are attributed, attributed to God. This, I think, is the the greatest scandal that we face as modern readers of Scripture. Two thoughts on that. All ancient writers' writings include morally objectionable things. That's just the nature of ancient writings. Most of us are less aware of this because the only writings from the ancient world that we have actually personally interacted with are the writings of Scripture. So we haven't read ancient Buddhist or Hindu scriptures, or we haven't read the Quran, we haven't read Homer's the Iliad or Virgil's the Aeneid. If we did, we'd find much to take issue with morally things that are morally objectionable in those writings. You know, if we think about the US Constitution, that's only 250 years old. So it's a tenth of the age of scripture. And it contains things that we regard as morally objectionable. Only white men who are landowners are eligible to vote. I mean, even someone in the KKK would object to the landowner part of that. You know, we can imagine society, say, 50 years down the road, reading our contemporary writings and being aghast at things that we take for granted as as perfectly morally acceptable. You know, you can imagine a world 50 years from now. It's possible pork would be grown in the lab from, from pork cells, not from pigs. And everyone would look back at the willingness to eat pork from pigs, requiring slaughtering these highly intelligent creatures, as just like morally abhorrent. Why would anyone do that? So within Scripture itself, what is considered morally abhorrent? abhorrent in one era, like marrying a half-sister, is accepted in another era within Scripture. Though sometimes the older perspective is arguably superior, it also works in the other direction, like uh, the laws on the treatment of animals in Exodus and Leviticus far exceed the most stringent best practices of PETA, the animal rights group, but often the, the morally abhorrent is the, to us, is, is the, earlier, um, the earlier writings. So I think um, the, the worst things in Scripture that work on us uh, are where God commands Moses or Joshua to commit genocide against the Canaanites. So some thoughts on this. Not an explanation. Just things that occur to me as I encounter these texts. These writings uh, that we call the Old Testament actually didn't emerge until 500 BC during the Babylonian exile. So they're depicting events that are that are like roughly a thousand years earlier than that. But the written documents don't come into Uh, into being until roughly 500 BC. So what were they? Well, they were stories. Even the law portions of the books like Exodus and Leviticus that include laws, uh, even the law portions are set within a narrative. So, you know, this happened, that happened, and then the Lord said to Moses, thus and so. So they're actually part of stories. The laws are part of stories. Like all the stories in scripture, they, they began as performance art. They're acted out. They were designed to keep people's attention. Um, they employ humor, they employ exaggeration, they employ pathos, surprise, sarcasm, and all the other tricks of rhetoric. And in these stories, in in the Old Testament in particular, Uh, God would often appear as a character in a story. God kneeling down in the dirt, breathing into Adam, uh, like kissing Adam. Well, that's God appearing as as a character in a story. We also know that when the writings were gathered as writings of the people of Israel were in 500 B.C., Israel had suffered at least two major invasions, worse than what the Ukrainians are undergoing now or the Syrians have suffered under Putin, worse than the the attacks on Yemen by the Saudis, more like what the First Nations suffered here in the uh, colonial era. Psalm 137 comes from this era. Beautiful psalm, one of the most beautiful psalms in all of scripture. Quoted, loved, basis for some beautiful songs. By the willows there we hung up our lyres. That's from God's spell. That's Psalm 137. Beautiful psalm. But it ends with, God dashed their infants against the rocks. Not usually included in the (laughs) lectionary readings of Psalm 137. Obviously, this is the cry of a traumatized people for vengeance, treat them God like they treated us. So we see this in the writings of the period, which include the genocidal commands. There's actually no archeological evidence for a mass genocide in what became the Holy Land. So there's no mass graves, which, which should be in the archeological uh, record, but we don't have that. So in scripture, we have voices calling for vengeance uh, which is different than justice and we have voices calling for mercy in this in from from books of the same period so in leviticus 19 same period roughly as uh, as the genocidal things attributed to god in um, in the book of joshua say in leviticus 19 we have love the foreigner living in the land as you love yourself. So this rules out killing them. Same voices in the same time period. So when we encounter the stories calling for genocide, we can respond like Abraham did. Uh, will the God of justice be unjust? God forbid. Um, actually, let's look at that story in Genesis 19, because it, it's a, it really helps me as I encounter these things in, uh, in Scripture. People in Scripture freely protest the words and actions ascribed to God in Scripture. People in Scripture freely protest the words and the actions that are ascribed to God in Scripture. That, that to me is just fascinating. We see characters disagreeing with God, getting away with it, even being honored for it. I think it's in Genesis 19, Abraham meets the three messengers, one of which is simply called the Lord, on the way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for the wickedness of its inhabitants. Abraham lodges a protest. Will the God of justice, not himself, be just? And so he negotiates with God. Will you destroy the cities if there are 50 righteous, 50 innocent?" How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? And God adjusts in response to his protest. Some of the ancient uh, sages of Israel actually fault Abraham for stopping at 10. Like in, in in the Middle East, not to be a good negotiator is really, that's really a strong lapse. And so Abraham is faulted by some of the sages for stopping at 10. If Abraham had been a better negotiator, he could have prevented the destruction of these cities. Just because God is portrayed as advocating something in Scripture doesn't mean our only faithful option is to go along with it, especially when the reason for our protest is rooted in what we learn from the God portrayed in Scripture as Abraham does when he says, "'Will the God of justice not be just?' So if, the, if Abraham, the father of all who believe, was free to protest, why would we not be uh, have that same freedom? So this has, been, this has been very helpful for me as I've encountered these texts in uh, these ancient writings. So let's, um, let's just close with a couple of uh, Bible recovery suggestions, uh, especially if you've come from this background where we've had this more problematic understanding of, of Scripture. My, my first suggestion would be, don't force it. Take the pressure off. It's, actually fo- it's possible to foster a very vital connection with God without reading the Bible. Many have done this within the Jesus tradition. Anyone who can't read does this in Soulless Jesus, I think Emily has a chapter where she points out how literacy rates were very low up to the invention of the printing, printing press. People who don't read were not reading their Bibles. Even today, literacy is not universal. Uh, literacy is not a requirement for faithfulness to God. I think Marcia uh, pointed out in the chat that, that the Bible drills, you know, really weren't were really kind of exclusionary in terms of the the people who could succeed in that had certain pre-existing skills. So if you have been subjected to what what I think can reasonably be called spiritual abuse from people using scripture as a club, it's completely understandable that you just need a break from reading scripture. And sometimes people need like years long break from actually reading scripture themselves, it's just like too triggering an experience. The body remembers, even though your mind has a, has a, a different perspective now. Um, at the very least, you, you may need to just proceed with caution. And there are lots of ways that, that we can be exposed to the truth of scripture without actually reading it. That happens. That happens in the church service in lots of different ways. Uh, maybe you read a book that engages scripture for Lent, or listen to podcasts that are dealing with these, these issues. So, like, there's no rule that says you have to read the Bible to have a close connection with God. Uh, second suggestion is um, to take a self-defined and stay connected approach to reading the Bible. So, if you're Again, if your experience has been tainted by the misuse of scripture, try a self-defined, stay-connected approach. This, this comes from family systems theory. Um, the idea is that anxiety flows between people. It's not just something that's inside of us, but it flows between us. We catch anxiety and fear. Family systems theory says that families tend to organize around the most anxious members. You know, the loudest, the people who are the most upset, we tend to like wanna keep the peace. So we organize around the most anxious members of a group. And the way to navigate this within family systems theory is you self-define. That means you set your boundaries. You say what you think. Doesn't mean you have to argue everything, but you just state what your view is when it differs from the views of others. And then having self defined it's more possible to stay connected. In fact, if you don't self-define, sometimes the only way to stay connected is to just like go along or pretend or like reduce your own self. Or you just disconnect entirely. You know, it becomes so toxic, so painful. You're not self-defining. Your only alternative is just to disconnect entirely from the family or the group. So in an anxious family system, self-defining can help you stay connected. I think that's actually a great, great way to interact with friends, with spouses, with business partners. It's a great way to relate to your therapist. Great way to relate to someone you admire, but maybe you don't agree with all the time. Self-define, stay connected. Good way to stay involved with groups of any kind. Good way for us to connect with scripture as well. Self-define. That's what God does in the burning bush with Moses, by the way. Moses sees this bush aflame, but it's not consuming anything. He has a sense of like a divine presence. Moses asks the bush, who are you? The response is, I am who am that tells Moses, uh, what you're seeing is not just a projection of your imagination, but someone who will define themselves, not others. (laughs) Um, Jesus was really good at self-defining, you know, this is how I see things. So to self-define in relation to scripture means you step into your power, you step into your moral agency to discern, to agree or disagree to learn from, be inspired by, to poke, prod, protest. Uh, Bring the whole range of your agency as a reader. I think this is part of the glorious liberty of the children of God. Uh, We're children of God. We're not clones of God. We're not robots of God. We're children of God. So you're reading along. This was the first, uh, first Bible study that my late wife, Nancy, and I went to. We were probably 19 years old. Brand new to faith, never read the Bible before, go to a Bible study on North Campus that someone invited us to. They're studying First Corinthians ten. Women should cover their uh, their head, you know, wear head coverings as nature itself indicates, Paul says in First Corinthians ten, I think it is. Well, you read something like that, you might say, if I'm understanding Paul correctly, I don't agree with him. Or by nature, I think he actually means what we think of as culture or convention. So agreeing with everything, or worse, pretending to, is not actually the best way to learn from someone else. Sometimes arguing with someone is the best way to learn from them, so we can bring this way of interacting to Scripture. And because we're free to self-define, then we can afford to stay connected and by staying connected, we can also learn from someone like Paul. We can gain insights that we don't have, but we later come to appreciate. Or we can we can draw inspiration from the Psalms, or from the writings of Isaiah the prophet, or Mary in the Gospel of Luke, or Jesus in the Gospel of John, or Naomi, or Ruth in the book of Ruth. These ancient writings are from a time when the world was much more enchanted, more tuned into mystery, more comfortable with transcendent realities peeking at it, in at us. Like there's a semi-permeable membrane between heaven and earth. And, and people in, in, in an earlier time understood that and they, they were facile with interacting with transcendent realities in a way that our modern world isn't at all. We didn't get that perspective from high school or college or grad school or reading the New York Times, but we have an itch for it that needs scratching. And so ancient writings are a place to encounter that. If we're free to self-define and we practice self-defining, which can be a little bit scary at first, especially if we've kind of been socialized, that that's a really bad thing to do then we can expand our horizons beyond the limits of just contemporary voices because every culture, including our own, has lenses that help us to see some things better, but also blinders that hide things from us. So if we can learn to self-define, give ourselves emotional permission to self-define, we can stay connected to ancient voices with different lenses, different blinders than ours, And these are actually the skills that we need to develop in any kind of meaningful relationship, including a relationship with God. So those are my thoughts on rethinking scripture